Prop 13 that is just enormously favorable to property owners. It, it, we, we tax the hell out of income yep. because we don't tax real estate, um, or at least not as much as they do almost anywhere else. Well, here we are in Texas, which is a complete flip of that, where we don't tax ordinary income, but we tax the hell totally, out of real estate. Totally. And like, uh, Cal- but California is like Shangri-La for long-term property owners. So basically the way it works is your property tax are, is pegged at 1% of your, roughly 1% of your um, acquisition price. And by law, it, it is only allowed to increase by 2% a year. Values are going crazy and your property tax is only growing 2% a year. I mean, effectively it's being reduced in real term. And it's just like, it, it's, it, it, it just, it rewards long-term holders. And we are back for another episode of the Housing News Podcast. This is Clayton Collins, the CEO of HW Media, and I am back with Moses Kagan, the co-founder and head of Adaptive Realty. I was really excited for this episode, and uh, and I can't wait to introduce you, our audience, to, to Moses. If you're not familiar with Moses, he's become a, a kind of a linchpin of the the real estate Twitter, the the retweet community, and shares a ton of knowledge about his business, Adaptive Real Estate, which is a investor and developer in the, the multifamily space in the Los Angeles market. What we do in this conversation is try to bridge some knowledge from what Moses is is learning and doing in the multifamily space in Los Angeles to help better understand the overall housing economy and what mortgage and real estate professionals should take away from what Moses is, is learning and doing every day. Before we jump into this conversation, I want to give a quick plug for our upcoming HW Plus virtual event. This is a 2022 forecast event that is going to tackle some of the most important projections for purchase and refi volume in the 2022 housing market. Sarah Wheeler, our editor-in-chief, is hosting the conversation. We're also going to have our lead analyst, Logan Motoshami, on there, Selma Hep from CoreLogic, Marina Walsh from the NBA, Jeff Tucker from Zillow, and Sadie Gurley from Maxwell. This is going to be a powerhouse conversation, and if you want to refine your numbers and your projections for 2022, this conversation will give you all of the insight that you need to be as accurate as possible in your business planning process. Please join us for this webinar. It is on February 8th at 1 p.m. Central. If you go to housingwire.com and look under the knowledge tab, there is a link via the webinars link there. So go to knowledge webinars and you can register for the 2022 forecast event. And now the conversation with Moses Kagan. All right, folks, welcome back to Housing News. This week, I'm really excited to, to welcome a guest, a guest I've had the, the pleasure of getting to know through the, the Twitter community over the last few years and, and actually had the chance to meet in person and uh, just a few months back at a conference that our guest hosted out in, in Hollywood. Moses Kagan, welcome to Housing News. Hey, thanks for having me. So for everyone who's not familiar with Moses, Moses is uh, the co-founder and head of Adaptive Realty, a real estate private equity fund investor and property manager out in the Los Angeles market. Moses is also a, a the center, one of the, the center points of the, the retweet, the real estate Twitter community, someone who 
not only engages a lot, but adds a ton of value and, and shares his knowledge and, and learns in public. So I think a lot of people have have become aware of Moses and the, the business that he is building out in Los Angeles over the last few years from from the from the Twitter activity. So Moses, let's let's kick off there. Like what it, what is Retweet to you? How how has Retweet come to come together and uh, how's it how's it impacting your business? Yeah, well, I mean, I think maybe to start with, let's say, uh, in terms of describing what it is, it's there's nothing formal. It's just a, um, a kind of an informal group of a bunch of us on Twitter who are engaged, broadly speaking, in the business of real estate, buying, renovating, flipping, managing uh, different kinds of assets all over the country, actually all over the world. Um, there's no formal hierarchy or anything. We just uh, all sort of found each other over the last, call it two-ish years. And it's really grown into a, a pretty awesome community. It's um, very supportive, uh, lots of really bright people who are subject matter experts, um, whether it's with respect to a specific asset class or market or whatever. And uh, I found it to be incredibly valuable for me personally in terms of meeting uh, interesting people and learning from them, meeting investors, learning new ways to do deals. Um, just really has been incredibly uh, additive to to my career. I feel like communities are are evolving right now. I think if you're a, a real estate investor or any any type of small business entrepreneur in the past, you might have turned to uh, your country club or your, the golf course or your your neighborhood buddies or or college alumni. Um, but but now it seems like there's actually online communities forming that bring together tighter knowledge bases and people who have more shared interests than you're ever going to find through coincidence on a, on a, on a golf course. How do you, do you, do you feel, does that feel true to you? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I should say that, um, I am not like a country club kid. Like I, you know, I grew up in upstate New York and my parents were kind of ex hippies. Um, so, uh, the way that I built our investor base from the very beginning at adaptive was by writing a blog. And it was this like really boring ass blog about um, uh, about buying and renovating and managing apartment buildings in Los Angeles. Uh, and as you can imagine, a blog like that is not going to develop like a gigantic audience. However, the audience that it did develop was highly valuable. Like anyone who's taking the time to read a, bl a blog like that obviously is very likely to be interested in buying or investing in or, or hiring a management company for real estate in Los Angeles. So um, I did that for years and it was uh, extraordinarily important in building our initial investor base. So when I was introduced to the finance Twitter community, which is kind of what real estate Twitter kind of grew from, um, it was just basically like, oh, okay, this is exactly the same thing that I did with my blog, except uh, obviously with character limits and also with much better distribution. So you you know if you if you're good at it, you can rapidly get to the point where tens or hundreds of thousands of people are reading what you have to say and that's just it's really hard to 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 explain to someone until you've seen it how powerful that distribution is. What did you learn from your early days blogging and getting content out there and, and, and driving engagement and actually moving those relationships from anonymous eyeballs on the screen to actual conversations and, and LP relationships? Like, What did you learn from the blog world that you've brought to Twitter? And, and then what have you changed as you found this new medium and your, and your yep. influence? Great, great question. Um, so the first and most important thing, and this is um, uh, 
advice that's repeated by professional authors of all stripes, like including novelists, wherever is consistency. So if you want to be a writer, you need to put your butt in a chair, preferably the same chair, preferably at the same time, every single day and write period. And that like Hemingway has given that advice and like the people on copy blogger or whatever, the other professional blogging websites that I used to read, give the same advice. Uh, and it's magical, um, both because, um, for, for, from the perspective of the writer, it trains your brain to be productive, uh, and, and creative at that specific time every day. For me, that's at five 15 when I'm drinking my coffee before I go, uh, work out. Um, so that's, so that's the, the, the first thing. And then the other thing about consistency when, when ported over into social media is that, you know, blogging, Twitter, whatever, is that it, um, it trains your audience to come back looking for your type of content at the specific, at the same time, every single day. And, uh, that, that consistency is just incredibly important in growing a business. Um, so that, I think those, that's kind of like the main thing. The other things I'll say is, um, I think I was very early on to the trend of kind of building in public, like just explaining exactly what we were doing and um, what that does. If you do it consistently is it allows people over a period of months or years to really get to know the way that you think about the world such that by the time they're reaching out to you to discuss, you know, investing in your deals or hiring you as a property manager or whatever, uh, whatever it may be, there's an enormous amount of trust that has been built up. Like, I can't tell you how many investor conversations I have begin with, I've already read a ton of what you've written. I've heard you on three different podcasts. I entirely get what you're doing. I'm very interested. I have these very specific questions, but that's just an entirely different kind of a sale than one where you're coming up and saying, hi, I'm Moses. Let me tell you about myself. It's just, a, it's a much, much better way to initiate a sale process. So when I think about that learning in public and like being open with the way you're thinking, the way you're building, it is honestly so different from what I see in a lot of the verticals that, that we spend time in. So I think about the mortgage lenders, which housing wire covers intimately, they will quietly work on a product or a regional expansion strategy or a hire. And then boom, there's a press release and you never knew anything about it until it's out there in the market. You look at the real estate brokerage firms, they'll quietly build tech solutions or recruit teams. And then boom, there's a press release. The tech companies are working on products and boom, it's rolled out. You just don't know what's actually coming up the pipe. And I think there's some, some industries, there's a necessity for that. And like, there's a competitive tension, but it seems like that competitive tension would also play in your world and as being a real estate investor and, uh, and developer. So how, how does, how have you gotten over that mindset of like, Hey, learning in public could be a risk. My competitors, there's, there's thousands of people that want to buy the same properties you do in the same market you do. How, how does that impact you? Oh, it, there, listen, there is no question that I have trained probably like a generation of competitors. There, uh, there, there's, it's beyond, beyond dispute. Um, I mean, I know I, people will reach out to me and be like, I read all, I read your whole blog and now I'm bidding on this building. And by the way, and I'm like, I'm bidding on that building too. So, um, so yeah, there's no question that I've created a lot of competition for myself. Um, on balance, I believe that, uh, that obviously that it's been helpful. Otherwise I wouldn't keep doing it. The truth is that at this point, 
Um, the blog in particular, um, I probably, from a competitive perspective or from a, from a coldly rational perspective, um, I should probably take it down because we already have, like, I have a huge list of investors. Like the last thing I need right now is more investors. I mean, not, that's not fair to say. I mean, I, we're, we're at this time we are, we have more capital than we know what to do with. Um, we could talk more about that. Um, uh, but the, so then the question becomes like, why do I keep that blog up? And the answer honestly is it's not coldly rational. Like I like teaching. Um, I feel like I was not exposed to our business. I kind of like stumbled across it. And uh, it's been a business that has been wonderful for me and for my family. And so I'm excited to share uh, what I know about this business with young people. And if that means on the margins that I have a little bit more competition for some of these deals, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like willing to live with it. Well, let's use that to jump into your business. So as I understand adaptive, this is a, a real estate private equity model focused on the multifamily assets. And, and you also are into property management now. So, so tell us more about adaptive and am I getting this right in real estate, private equity and, and how you kind of describe that business model? Yeah. I mean, but maybe let's like not even use like technical terms, like basically what we've been doing for the last um, 12 years or something is maybe more now is buying screwed up old buildings in Los Angeles, fixing them up. And then instead of flipping them, which is kind of like what standard private equity firms do, we refinance them and hold them. And uh, in order to do that well, we've also built a property management function that manages our own buildings and then buildings on behalf of specific third-party owners who kind of share our philosophies about how to, how to do business. So that's, that's, what we, that's what adaptive is. Now, we've capitalized these deals in a number of different ways. Sometimes we do discretionary funds where we pool together a bunch of smaller checks from uh, individual investors and buy a portfolio of buildings. Um, sometimes we'll have one investor write a huge check, like a $20 million check, and we'll go buy a bunch of buildings just as in a partnership with that investor. Um, sometimes we'll syndicate deal by deal. So it, the, 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 um, the form varies, but, uh, the overall, the, the guiding light of the business is we want to own very high quality real estate in uh, supply constrained markets and we want to own it forever. So the topic of perpetual capital or long-term capital has gotten a lot more attention in, in recent years. And it sounds like you're taking that long-term lens to, to, to real estate assets. How, how are you, are you, so like, are you having investors that line up and say like, Hey, we're, we're trying to build wealth for 10, 20, 50 years out next generation. Um, how, how does, yeah, go, go a little deeper there on, yeah. on the investor pitch. I mean, literally, uh, some of our, in fact, some of our larger investors will invest out of trusts that are in their kids' names. Like that. So everyone who invests with us for better or worse is um, fully bought into the idea that, uh, that wealth is built slowly via compounding that, um, that, that untaxed capital gain, the compounding of untaxed capital gains is basically like the cheat code of American capitalism. And we can talk more about that if you want. This is all Warren Buffett stuff. Like I wish I was smart enough to have invented it. Uh, I had, I, I thought of some of it and then I read him and it was like, that's right. So, um, and, and I think a lot of our investors kind of have arrived at the same point through various different uh, paths, but basically everyone's signed up to the idea that you buy good stuff, you steward it well, uh, uh, and you don't sell it unless something radical changes. And, um, and that means 
probably multi-generationally like, and, and I think that's, you know, that comes from my family's experience with real estate and my personal experience with real estate. And I think it, 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 it jibes with what a lot of other people have experienced in real estate as well. So, so when you go in with that long-term mindset, does that mean that you, you won't sell or does you just don't have a timeline to sell? Like, ha- have you come to, have you decided like, Hey, this, this building or this, this, um, this, area has kind of reached its potential. So it's time to to see what the market has to say, or do you take a different mindset of like, Hey, we're not even going to kind of entertain those broker conversations. We're, we're holding for forever, no matter like what we think is going on in the market. Well, I, I think let's say, let's put it this way. We think about ownership as indefinite, um, which is to say that it's not, it, that's not literally permanent. Like it, it, there are scenarios that um, I can imagine where we would be sellers um, but it's not going to be because, you know, cap rates are a little high, right. Or a little low right now. And so therefore we can get a reasonably good price. Like fine. We'll, to the extent that the rents and therefore the debt service coverage, uh, ratios allow it, we'll refinance and pull capital out. And that's how we'd return capital to our investors. Um, but, um, but for us to sell, it would have to be like, something's going really wrong with the building, or we can foresee something going wrong with the building. Or something is materially changed about Los Angeles um, that that calls into question the whole supply demand imbalance thing. Um, maybe some change, I guess, changes to regulation, you know, laws in certain kinds of ways, tax law or otherwise, might change it, cause us to reevaluate. But we're going in with the sense that this is that this is going to be quasi permanent. Well, I didn't invite you on the show for tax advice, but since you brought up the topic of the the cheat code to American capitalism, t- tell us a little bit more about real estate's ability to compound and the in the, the tax considerations and in, in your investment strategy. Yeah, and I mean, like, I I, I do want to caveat this whole conversation by saying that um, long term hold may or may not be appropriate for other asset classes and other markets. Um, our strategy is a specific artifact of the context in which we find ourselves operating, which is to say Los Angeles over the last 10, 12 years or whatever it is. Um, so I want to make sure that people don't walk away thinking that you know you should always hold every asset class in every market because I, I don't believe that. And I actually think that's probably not true. So so that's the caveat. Um, but, uh, but, but going back to the main point, um, if you sell, like, so you, you buy a building, you fix it up, you have the choice of selling or not selling. If you sell, you're going to incur a bunch of costs. Now, there are uh, there are a cost of sales, which in Los Angeles, it's like 7 or 8% of the uh, gross purchase price. Um, and then uh, crucially, and particularly in California, there are uh, capital gains uh, and state taxes. And so... If you sell, you are subject to you're you're basically vaporizing a lot of the value that's there um, on an after tax basis. So you 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 when you you'll sell and you'll first of all you'll get a closing statement that shows all the various costs, transfer taxes, brokerage, title, all that stuff that you pay when you sell, and then you'll file your tax return for that entity, and then you'll really see the government coming and taking its share. Um, and so my thought process is, look, like rather than sort of incinerating whatever X percentage of the of the gross proceeds, instead, hold the thing, 
refinance it to pull capital out. Because when you when you um, refinance, and this is subject to a whole bunch of caveats, and please consult your tax attorney and CPA, et cetera. But when you refinance and you pull uh, equity out of the building, um, you get to distribute that tax-free. And that's just, that's why you hear about real estate, you know, big real estate owners who have not paid taxes since the eighties or whatever, because they're combining the, the benefits of depreciation, which obviously we can talk about as well uh, on the uh, depreciation and loss carry forwards on the, on the one hand with this, this concept of uh, tax-free debt finance distributions on the other. And it's just, it's just a very, very powerful way to, uh, to grow net worth hold, allow rents to grow and values to grow and refinance and pull capital out tax-free when, when you want to. It sounds like the, the refinance strategy is, is nothing new on the single family side of the, the market. And then we're talking about um, homes that people actually live in for the most part, but there are, so there is some investor opportunity here. Uh, the, the refi market was incredibly hot in 2020 and 2021 in the low rate environment. We're seeing rates tick up. Are you seeing that on the on the commercial credit side as well? Is there are there any market conditions that are making you think about refi differently than you may have six months ago? No, I mean, look, the, the rates have definitely ticked up. Um, I would say uh, they were a little slower to move up than they were in the residential world, but they're definitely moving up now. Um, we are constrained in the commercial world by prepayment penalties, so. Um, uh, whereas at least in California with a with a residential mortgage, you can you can refinance anytime you want. Uh, with commercial mortgages, you're gonna you're typically gonna be subject to some kind of a prepayment penalty, particularly early in the loan. So there are a whole bunch of properties that I would have loved to have refinanced last year, which I it, 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 I could it was infeasible to do so because I would have been subject to these to these uh, draconian prepayment penalties. So what we do basically is every year we look at um, uh, the whole portfolio. And at this point, it's 40 something buildings. And we look at, you know, where are we in the loan cycle with each one of those? What is the property worth? What kind of loan we think it could support? And then we prioritize and start going through and refinancing as appropriate. You mentioned that there's some unique dynamics to the LA market that uh, influence your your long-term hold strategy that, that might not play out across the US. What are some of those characteristics that have made LA an attractive market to to hold in the long term and, and refi value out instead of eventually selling the asset? Yeah. So um I think I guess I would say the most important is uh the the just more or less permanent uh imbalance between supply and demand. So Southern California is a spectacular place to live. Like it's got obviously great weather, all kinds of, you know, the geography is amazing. Like I went skiing last weekend and it's 75 degrees. I could go swimming in my backyard. It's just awesome. Okay. Uh, It also has an extraordinarily dynamic and diverse economy. So um, most recently, like we're building a big uh, tech business to go alongside obviously a traditional media business. We have a, a important aerospace business, and it's just, and then just like plenty of other random uh, finance and law and all that other mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So um, big, diverse, dynamic economy. Um, so so that means there's lots of lots of high paying jobs and people really want to live here. Uh, so that's the demand on the supplies side, we are just chronically incapable of building uh, enough uh, housing to service the the demand. Um, And that has to do uh, mainly with historic zoning. Um, The city, city, uh, I think in the 60s, downzoned enormous number of neighborhoods, which uh, I would go so far as to say 
the vast majority of the buildings that we own today would be illegal to build currently. Okay. And so that means like I, my, my, the, the best example I have, I have a building we own in, uh, uh, in one neighborhood where uh, the building was built, I think in like 1963 or something like that. And the neighborhood was almost immediately down zoned thereafter. So we have an apartment building on a street of with single family zoning. Like, so it is literally illegal to compete with us with that building. So um, that's, that's what I'm talking about, about, so there's, there's an enormous amount of demand to live here. Uh, and, and, and the, 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 the zoning code does not allow you to, to, to build. Now, in addition, what's happened as a result of that zoning code is that um, housing prices, rents basically have shot to the moon. Okay. Construction workers can't afford to live in the city. Mm-hmm. So in addition to the zoning issues, you also have this major labor supply issue where uh, the the people who you need to work to literally build buildings have to drive in from the Inland Empire, which is like a two-hour commute each way. So, I mean, they do it. You see these guys sleeping in their trucks, you know, at seven because they drive in at 4.30 in the morning to try to beat the traffic and then sleep in their pickup trucks outside the construction site uh, uh, in the morning. So that's... Uh, but but anyway, so that so there's in addition to the to the regulatory issues, there's also just a labor uh, a labor cost issue as well because you have to compensate them for doing that. Um, so you get this long term uh, supply demand imbalance, and that's been going on for a very long time in LA, and it means that uh, rents and therefore property values grow faster than inflation. The other thing that's going on, uh, and this is a, a idiosyncratic to California is we have a property tax regime called Prop 13 that is just enormously favorable to property owners. Um, Your listeners' impression of California as this like, you know, super taxed state is deceiving. We we tax the hell out of income because we don't tax real estate, Um, or at least not as much as they do almost anywhere else. Well, here we are in Texas, which is a complete flip of that, where we don't tax ordinary income, but we tax the hell out of real estate. Totally. And like, and and I think you could probably make a pretty persuasive um, argument that from a public policy perspective, the way that Texas does things is probably better for the world. Uh, But California is like Shangri-La for long-term property owners. So basically the way it works is your property tax is pegged at 1% of your, roughly 1% of your um, acquisition price. And by law, it it is only allowed to increase by 2% a year. So imagine we're in this like inflationary environment right now, rents are going crazy, values are going crazy, and your property tax is only growing 2% a year. I mean, effectively, it's being reduced in real terms. And so uh, obviously, if you think about that for a little while, what you'll realize is that the longer you hold, the, 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 and the more rents grow faster than property tax, which is your single largest expense item, the bigger, the better your margins get. And it's just like, it, it's, it, it, it just, it rewards long-term holders. That's absolutely wild. I think about long-term hold in, in Texas, I mean, in res, residential, like there's a, there is a flip that comes after, if you look at a, a decade of home ownership where your taxes start to surpass your principal and interest each month. And, uh, like two and a half, 2.75% in, in some parts of the DFW area. It's yep. uh that, that is a wild difference in, in ownership. Yeah. It, I mean, it, we, we've looked at Texas because obviously Texas is extraordinarily appealing in a lot of ways, uh, given the amount of growth that's going on there. Um, 
And I'm not, I don't mean to disparage the market because I mean, I think people have obviously done extremely well investing even for the long term in Texas. But I look at it and I'm like, wow, you know, it seems like those counties just come for your net operating income uh, uh, every year and there's not much you can do to stop them. Whereas in California, at least they can't do that. Well, I don't see it as disparaging. It's just an understanding of the of the game you're playing, like understanding the the rules of the the game that is in that is in front of you. And like, there's there's favorable parts of Texas. Like, we do have the population growth. Where if I look at Southern California, totally. population growth has been pretty flat. Like, so, like net net growth oh, yeah. has been stagnant for the last few years. But that supply imbalance that you talked about more than makes up for population trends where if you look at Texas and into the, into the Southeast where population is flooding right now, but there's also kind of infinite opportunity outside of like supply chain and labor issues to, to add more supply. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I mean, I, I, you know, um, I think one of the things that makes adaptive such an, an interesting and uh, unusual business is because my, neither my partner nor I trained at some other private equity firm, um, and, and we really literally just built this ourselves, what we've done has always just been, okay, look at the um, the facts as they are on the ground right in front of us and, and derive a strategy basically from first principles that seem smartest based on what the, the environment in which we find ourselves. That's why I caveated this before. Like if you're in a market where your property taxes are going to go crazy, like maybe long-term holding isn't the right thing. Maybe you should get in and get out and, and, and go do the next deal. Um, but for us in California, you, if you have good, good real estate, you, you just want to hold it and, and manage it well and don't, don't sell it. So that, that specialization that you have focused on California and, and multifamily and, uh, but also an awareness of what's going on in other markets and other asset classes. Ha- have you felt the temptation to, to look at, f- follow Chris Powers path into, into industrial or, or go into s- to single family development? How do you think about your specialization and focus and, and will that continue in the long haul? Yeah, I mean, I guess so. The answer is yes. I'm absolutely tempted by all kinds of other business models, and that's maybe like sort of an entrepreneurial curse. Like the kind of person who starts a business is also yeah. kind of likely to be a curious person, and therefore you're going to go look at other stuff. Um, my so I should say that our historical rehab business, like the thing that we've been doing that makes money for years and years and years and years, has mostly stopped working today. Like the the market for reasons we can talk about. Um, the numbers are just not particularly appealing relative to the brain damage right now. So we have evolved our strategy. Um, we have been purchasing what I'll call core deals, which are um, brand new construction buildings that someone else built that we're just going to buy with investors, put on pretty moderate leverage, like 50% loan to value leverage that's fixed for you know as long as we can fix the rate for and just hold it. And that's not like that exciting. Like it, it certainly doesn't produce the um, the returns that the that the rehab business does when when the rehab business is done correctly. But um, but it's just a response to the difficulty of operating in in uh, in California in, in in Los Angeles right now, and to the way the numbers work. And we can get into that if you want to uh, talk more about how we how we think about those rehab deals. Well, what, but one of the advantages of core deals is don't you have the opportunity to put more money to work and, uh, like with 
less what, less manpower than the value add strategy? Like, how, what, yeah. how does that benefit yeah, it's, work? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's from a from the position of the sponsor from from my position. Yeah, it's a it's a it's just a much better business. Like you're on a percentage basis, you're going to charge lower fees, but there's just so much less work involved that it's that it's it's just a much more scalable, better business. That being said, like. I love rehab, like I, both because um, both because it, uh, it it's cool to take an older, like a hundred year old building and make it like uh, so that it will be great for another hundred years. That's like that's cool. Separately from the financial yep. aspects, and then I mean, just to be very clear about how good the rehab business can be when it's good, we have uh, very often been able to buy a building, and we usually we're usually all cash when we buy it, so buy all cash. We actually usually renovate with cash as well. And then like, you know, 18 to 24 months in, uh, we have historically been able to refinance and pull out all of the capital. Mm-hmm. At that point, like, so we, in other words, we give our investors their cap, we, we put a loan on, we give the investors and ourselves all of our money back. And then it's just like a perpetual cash machine that you got for free. And so that's just, I mean, uh, it's hard to beat that model from a return perspective, particularly when you couple that with the long-term compounding. You're, it's just you're getting to spread a very spread a very thin layer of equity across, or you know, across a, a, almost like an infinite number of deals, and that's just amazing business. Um, it's just that the numbers are out of balance right now, so they won't. It just doesn't work right now. And but what you're bringing to that value add strategy is talent and skills. So this is an area where you have experience. And if I'm not mistaken, your, your wife supports you in the design side as well. Uh, actually, right? no, or- my, so my wife is a designer and uh, okay. but, well, my, my partner, my business partner, um, John does uh, all of the design and construction management and has, we've been partners since I don't know, we've been working together since like 2008 or something. Um, he's the quiet so one. It's a quiet one. So, so you're, so you're bringing the, the knowledge and, and John is, John is bringing the design expertise of like to really change, make these value add properties yeah. special. I'm guessing that in terms of unit count, the, the value add properties are probably lower unit count than what you're able to do on the core side. Yeah, totally. I mean, it, so, they're big, they're effectively like little art projects, like six units, yeah. eight units. And I mean, units in Los Angeles, I should be clear, like are more, much more expensive than they are other places. So you're talking about like 500 K ish per unit all in maybe more. So it's, you know, so even a five unit deal is actually not that small, but, um, but yeah, they're little like arts and crafts projects. It's, it's very, and we've scaled it. We're, you know, we have routinely done 10 or 15 of them at a time, which is how we've grown, but it's, it is a, an enormous amount of brain damage, even in the best of times. And right now, uh, because of the chaos in the city um, planning and building departments, it's, it's even, it's like the brain damage is like too much right now. Yeah. Okay. So there's a brain damage and kind of lack of inventory on the value add side. So, so you go to core, um, earlier you mentioned that like LPs aren't a problem. You might have more capital than you, than you really know what to do with and the, or, or, or want to put to work in the current market. How does that dynamic play into the, the inventory dynamic? Like could chasing core faster be a way to put more money to work or are there challenges with that higher velocity there? Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, uh, there, there are definitely two different sets of LPs. So we, so we raised and gave back a $23 million fund. So we raised 23 million bucks to do the value add deals and sat on it for a year. Couldn't find anything that made sense and gave it back. 
And that was something you were really transparent about on in the in the Retweet community on Twitter. I remember I remember reading about that, and I think you had other real estate sponsors and private equity sponsors kind of jaw dropped with the uh, with the the gusto of making that decision. That's something that likely was really positive for your LPs. Well, I mean, I I think they would have preferred if we had put the money out and okay. if we could have found the deals. Um, but look, I mean, yeah, we, uh, there was no other. We had established we we had established some pretty clear quantitative criteria for that fund about what we would do and wouldn't do, and so we were, you know, we as we have always done, we were just underwriting deal after deal after deal after deal, and it was just like clear that nothing was coming close to hitting um hitting those those that those criteria and so while it is obviously extraordinarily unusual to give back a fund from where i sat it was not like a particularly hard decision it was like look we promised that we were going to do deals like this we can't find the deals we're not going to put you into a bunch of mediocre deals and lie to ourselves uh we're going to give the money back and you know Fortunately, I think we have the kind of LPs who appreciated that. But I'm, I'm well. I won't lie. There are one or two who gave me a pretty hard time about it. And like, obviously, I'm in some ways I'm glad that I'm not going to be doing business with those people in the future, right? Because like, it's it, um, these these funds are 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 as we've already discussed, effectively almost perpetual. So um, you want to be in business with people who really appreciate how you do business. And in some ways it was a blessing to find out from a few people. I don't mean to be mean about it, but for that, that maybe we weren't as aligned as I thought we were, but in general, the response was incredibly positive and understanding from the investors. So your headaches are 20 year headaches. If, if, if an LP that you're not getting along with, um, isn't working out great, you're, you're in it side by side for, uh, maybe until you're working with their kids. Totally. And look, I mean, obviously there are ways, you know, we could buy them out or they could buy us ways. There's, there, there are ways to unwind these things. And like, look, um, we have been very, very fortunate uh, in that. And this actually goes back to the earliest part of our conversation because the vast majority of our investors have come to us via either reading things that I have written or listening to podcasts like this or whatever. Um, they're they're basically self-selected for people who are going to have kind of like a long-term mindset. And those people, like I tend to get along really well with those people. We tend to see eye to eye. And like, when they ask me a question and I explain my thinking, they're like, yep, that's what I would have done in that situation too. So we have, you know, uh, many people have said, I think this is probably Buffett said this first, but other people have said it too. Um, over the long run, I think that um, sponsors uh, or investment managers or whatever get the investors that they deserve. And I didn't believe that early in my career. Like I, I, uh, I was like, I deserve lots of investors. Where are the investors? But that's why I say it takes a long time and you have to keep like explaining what you're doing and how you think about the world and what kind of deals you want to do and showing people your track record and executing and all that stuff. But over a long period of time, you will get the investors you deserve. Yeah, as a as a sponsor myself of 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 Remar Capital and what we've, we're doing with HW Media, uh, when you're when you're a first time fundraiser, first time entrepreneur going out and raising capital, it is incredibly hard to put a pin in the characteristics that you are really going to care about in, in LPs over the long haul. So I I, I hear you loud, loud and clear there. So I, I want to kind of. Bring, put a little bit of a, a, a bow on this, Moses. So when we were talking in advance, I, I said one of the things I, I hope to get out of this conversation is, is bring some 
knowledge about the, the multifamily investor and development um, and rehab uh, side to our, our largely single family finance and real estate brokerage audience. And as we're talking, I'm kind of reminded of your your event that you hosted in the fall, Reconvene. And it kind of seems like that's what, what you were doing there. You were bringing expertise from different parts of the, the real estate investing and operations world and some folks from other SMB um, avenues and, and, and ventures t- together to, to share experiences. So uh, instead of asking you to, to share all your perspectives on single family, I, I might tie this to Reconvene. What were you aiming to achieve with reconvene with the people you brought to stage and the guests that, that you invited as, as attendees. And, and what were some of your biggest takeaways as the, some, someone who got to sit through and hear all the speakers, but also, you know, have all the backstage conversations with these experts from across the real estate ecosystem. Yeah. So I, sh- I should say that um, the reason we started reconvene was that I just uh, viscerally recall um, how, the, the sort of the lack of content and guidance uh, or, that I experienced around starting and growing a real estate private equity shop. So if you go to a bookstore or Amazon or whatever, there's like a million books about oh, you landlording for dummies or whatever. How to like, get you, rich you, quick. Totally. And there's, well, and, and, and there's plenty of them are good too. Like, you know, how to buy a small portfolio of income properties and landlording and all that stuff. Great. Okay. That is fundamentally different from growing a private equity firm that uh, is going to use investor money. So there are a lot of the same skills involved at the deal level, you know, how to identify a good deal and how to execute on it and how to manage it and all that stuff. But layered on top of that, there are these questions about, okay, how do you raise investor money? What is is an appropriate incentive structure for the the deal sponsor vis-a-vis the investors? How do you think about debt? How do you think about fees? How do you as a real estate sponsor, someone who wants to do this, not just on a one-off basis, but grow a firm doing it, how do you think about fees and duration of hold and asset class and strategy and all that stuff? So I did not like, because I had never worked at a fir- another firm and because this wasn't like a family business, I had to figure out a lot of this stuff for myself. And I made enormous numbers of mistakes, like stuff where I want to kick myself just thinking about it. It's so painful. Okay. So, um, so what reconvene is, and my and this is also my motivation for engaging in, in real estate Twitter and my blog also is um, an attempt to kind of like help fill that void of content around um, how you do this business. And so um, what we did with reconvene is we set up a effectively like an unconference, like a couple of days of getting together practitioners, like people who have not, and this is not like, you know, real estate newbies. This is like people who've done a few deals up to people who've done a lot of deals, like anywhere from, you know, 10, 20 million of assets under management up to people who like, there were people there who had billions of dollars of assets under management talking about how do you create and bootstrap and grow one of these entrepreneurial real estate private equity shops. And that's what the whole event was about. And that's what we really try to get into the weeds with the speakers about those specific choices that you have to make along the path that help you grow or not grow. And that's, that's, that's really what the whole event was about. Yeah, that's that's a very good assessment of how I how I felt on the ground as an attendee. And I think that content about the 
the business of entrepreneurship and, and building businesses is, is probably one of the biggest holes out there in the, in the content world. There, there's tons of information about doing real estate deals and analyzing different types of investment opportunities and um, some, some, some practical knowledge about entrepreneurship, but there's not a lot of, of great practical knowledge from people who have built businesses in specific verticals. And that's something that I think you, you, you really captured with reconvene. Yeah. I mean, it's, look, it's, it's uh, private equity. I mean, effectively that's what you've done too. And buying your business uh, it, you know, it, it's, it is, or at least has been primarily kind of like an apprenticeship business. And so what we're doing with Reconvene, what we did last year, what we're doing this year, and what we'll do in future years is really just try to, let's say, maybe do that apprenticeship or mentorship or whatever with a little bit of scale. So, yep. so like t- taking the people who really have done it and really have been thoughtful about how they've done it and kind of letting other people, other practitioners into behind the curtain. Well, I think that's one reason why the in, on Twitter the retweet community seems to have pre, pretty big overlap with the the financial or the finchwit community and SMB and like entrepreneurial acquisition because while all of the individuals are are playing in different end markets or verticals or um, industries entirely, there's there's common threads between raising capital, managing LPs, managing people, being a leader improving operations, implementing technology, marketing, like, like all the things that being an entrepreneur is. So, um, yeah, Yeah, no, I mean, real estate, real estate development is really, I mean, it is, it literally, it's like, there are small businesses. Now they, they, we swing around amounts of capital that are larger than, than your standard small business, but we have exactly the same problems that every small business has. Like, how do you invest ahead of growth? you know, HR issues? Uh, how do you keep your uh, employees who you've trained from going and competing with you? Like there's just the same issues that every small business has, every real estate developer has too. So Moses, I think we've learned a lot about you and your business in this conversation. There's one question I've been using to to wrap up the the housing news podcast. And uh, you seem like a man of, of many interests. So if you were not in the real estate industry, if you were not running adaptive, what path would you see for yourself? What does an alternate universe look like for, for Moses in a non-real estate world? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess maybe I'd answer that in two ways. Like if we're, if we're going to like strip the greed out, <laughs> like in other words, I could have been a history teacher and I may still be a history teacher at some point in my life or politics or whatever. Actually, I'd be interested in teaching entrepreneurship too. Um, but so I, I love, I, lo- I just love working with young people and, and, and teaching them and helping point them in the right direction. So uh, if you strip the greed out, uh, uh, that's what I would do. Um, if you were, uh, if you were asking me like, what is it, what is the entrepreneurial thing that I would do if I were not, uh, doing real estate? It's, um, actually right along the, the, the path of what you're doing, to be honest. Um, I think that the opportunity to buy small businesses is extraordinarily appealing or not so small businesses, extraordinarily appealing. And, um, I also believe strongly as part of basically because it's worked so well for me, uh, in the power of niche content and niche communities to 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 really create some pretty amazing economics. So that's that I would I would be probably be doing something some version of acquiring and or building niche media businesses. Hey, well, you're kind of getting to do all of those things. You're uh, you're, you're you're teaching on social media. You're you're building the the unconference with reconvene in the niche content space. So Moses, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, your knowledge, your expertise, and your interests. It's really been fun talking to you today. Oh, well, listen, thank you so much uh, for for having me on. And I admire very much what you're doing and uh, hope everyone enjoyed it. 
Bam. Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you.